have questions about your health? A simple pill won't fix your problems. And there's so many points and opinions on the internet that a web search just leaves you more confused. So why not take the time and listen to those who know best? Rider University's Health Studies Institute presents Health 411. Truthful health information to expand your knowledge and perspective right here and now. So let's bring it to your host, Dr. Jonathan Carp, Professor of Biology, Behavioral Neuroscience, and Health Sciences. 1077 The Bronx, 1077thebronc.com. Proudly nominated for a National Association of Broadcasters 2019 Marconi Award for Best College Radio Station. We are live from the Killarney's Public House Studios at Rider University. Welcome to Health 411. I'm Dr. Jonathan Karp. The Rider University Health Studies Institute presents Health 411, truthful health information to expand your knowledge and your perspective. The Rider University Health Studies Institute communicates cross perspectives affecting health, wellness, public health, healthcare policy, and the business of healthcare. I am in the studio today with Antonia Conti, our producer, and our guest, Dr. Payal Shah. She is an MD at the University of Pennsylvania Division of Hematology and Oncology. She actually joins us from her office and laboratory at the University of Pennsylvania. Welcome, Dr. Shah. Thank you so much. And we're happy to have you here today, um, remotely from your offices. So thank you taking, for taking time out of your busy day to, to talk with us. Our topic is today is going to be about um, genetic testing and cancer and some historical disparities um, in genetic testing. Um, but before we get to that, as way of introduction, Dr. Shah, can you tell us a little bit about yourself, about your background, and uh, what you do? Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. So I'm Pyle Shaw. I am a medical oncologist and a researcher with uh, a group called the Basser Center for BRCA at the University of Pennsylvania. And my focus is on breast cancer, ovarian cancer, and cancer genetics. So when I'm in clinic as a medical oncologist, I see patients who either have breast or ovarian cancer or who are at risk for cancer. And then in terms of research, my work includes clinical trials. So I try to develop new treatments for patients who have cancer. And I'm also interested in various other issues related to um, inherited predispositions to cancer, including disparities um, and genetic testing implementation and some other topics. So Excellent. Um, that is some background on me. Okay, and so we will get to all that. So the bottom line is you see patients with cancer and you do research um, involving potential ways to help patients who have different kinds of cancers, especially like breast and ovarian things. And so you mentioned um, two things that, that I want to ask you a little bit about. One of the things you mentioned was, or I introduced it, was disparities. And yes. what do you mean? What does a professional geneticist physician mean when they talk about disparities? One thing that we do is we evaluate patients who are at risk for developing cancer in the future. So patients who don't have any sort of cancer right now but might be at some genetic risk to develop it. And one thing that has been noted historically is that they, um, there are certain populations of patients for whom we do a better job than others in terms of getting them the testing that they need and identifying these inherited uh, susceptibilities to cancer. And by way of disparities, what I'm referring to is that historically we know that although 
black women who have breast cancer have a higher incidence of having early age onset breast cancer, so before age 50, they're twice as likely to be diagnosed with uh, a more aggressive form of breast cancer called triple negative breast cancer, and they have a higher mortality rate compared to white women, and yet we know that they are substantially less likely than white women to undergo um, genetic testing to help identify some of these um, predispositions uh, ahead of time. Okay, and so that, that leads into my next question is that why is genetic testing important? Oh, absolutely. So, so genetic testing is, is incredibly important because doing genetic testing allows us to, number one, identify people who could potentially benefit from cancer risk prevention strategies or cancer risk reduction strategies. And we have proven ways to do that, for example, through risk-reducing surgeries or risk-reducing medications or even um, screening people who are at higher risk for cancer in a different way than we screen people who are not at higher risk for cancer. We also have different ways of treating people who we know are at a specific genetic risk for um, having cancer that led to their cancer in the first place. So basically, when we have genetic testing results in an individual, there are things that we can do to either prevent cancers from happening that in that individual, or if cancers have already happened, there are different ways that we can treat the person. But of course, we can only do those things if we know about that genetic predisposition in the first place. Is this a little bit of what sometimes we hear in the news, the change towards personalized medicine? Absolutely, yes, exactly. We're talking about precision medicine, um, and precision medicine can only happen if we know about the predisposing factor in the first place. And so when we talk about personalized medicine, in case this case genetics and cancer, if somebody, and we'll get to some of the details, but if you have a genetic predisposition to something, does that, is that a deterministic outcome or is that a probabilistic outcome? That's a great question. It is a probabilistic outcome, even though I think that, um, you know, it, it can seem when it's put out there in the press that it's a, um, a definitive thing. It is a probabilistic outcome. So, for example, um, you know, two genes that have been talked about in the in the news as of recent have been, are BRCA1 and BRCA2. And these are two genes that increase the risk for developing breast cancer, ovarian cancer, and some other types of cancer. Um, but if you have a genetic mutation, that means a misspelling or an altered version of one of these genes, that does not necessarily mean that you are absolutely going to develop breast, ovarian, or other types of cancer. It just means that you are more likely to develop um, breast, ovarian, or other types of cancer than someone who does not have these mutations. Right. So, for example, um, an inherited mutation in a BRCA1 gene can put you at a lifetime risk of developing breast cancer of somewhere between 60 and 80 percent, um, and a lifetime risk of developing ovarian cancer of somewhere between probably 30 to 40 percent. And for BRCA2, we're looking at a breast cancer risk and an ovarian cancer risk that are a little bit lower, probably in the 50 to 70 percent range for breast, 10 to 20 percent range for ovarian. Um, and people who have these inherited mutations also tend to develop um, breast and ovarian cancer a little bit at younger ages than others would. Mm -hmm. And um, there are some other cancer risks that are also associated with these gene mutations, including uh, male breast cancer, pancreas cancer, 
prostate cancer, melanoma, and and others. And what what we've learned in the past several years is that the story is much much broader than just BRCA1 and 2. There are many other genes that can increase the risk for developing um, breast, ovarian, and other types of cancers. And so you bring up an, an important thing, and, and I see it in the classroom too when we're teaching like biostatistics and things, is getting people to understand that probabilistic way of thinking. It's not, it's not yes. predetermined. It's a, it's a probability. So the, in this case, the genes themselves increase a risk. They're not saying you're going to have cancer, and not everybody who would have a mutation in these things would get it. That's absolutely right. And and, um, and do you see people understanding that, the patients that you see? Yes, I do. I mean, I think that, you know, I think when, for example, when I meet someone who doesn't have cancer but who has just found out that they have a mutation, maybe they, you know, did direct-to-consumer testing or 23andMe or color and they find out that they have a mutation, I think before they come in and see us, they probably, you know, many of them have looked up on the internet and Googled what this yes. all means, but because some of these percentages are so high, it can really scare people into thinking that it's, um, a, you know, an absolute determination that they are going to develop cancer. And part of what I, what I do during our counseling sessions is kind of give them the facts and the information so that they understand that this is not an absolute determination, but it's, it is a probability of developing cancer. And fortunately, it's a probability that when we know that it exists, we can do things to counter that probability. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and that's sort of the, under the umbrella, I guess, early interve- intervention. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Early intervention. And it's treat, in a sense, treating things before the illness happens. It's the, exactly. It, yeah. so, so sometimes it's treating things before the illness happens, mm-hmm. and that's kind of what we think of as primary pe- prevention. Mm-hmm. So, for example, for an individual who has a BRCA1 or a BRCA2 mutation, mm-hmm. we talk about different things like um, having the ovaries and fallopian tubes removed at a certain age, not too early, but um, having them surgically removed to help prevent you know, ovarian cancer from ever developing in the first place. We discuss as an option also prophylactic mastectomy, which means preventive removal of the breast tissue to help reduce the likelihood of developing breast cancer. Or we also talk about um, early detection, which involves for, for, for patients who choose to not undergo a prophylactic mastectomy who want to leave their breast tissue intact, we offer, in addition to just annual mammograms, we offer annual breast MRIs to basically help um, increase the likelihood that we will be able to find a cancer if it is present at an earlier stage when it's more likely to be curable. That's excellent. And that, that a lot has changed in the years from when when I was um, in school. The ideas of preventative medicine was almost a, a, a nasty word. Um, it seems <laughs> like it, it, the world has come a, 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 a long way, and I think that's a positive thing. Um, we want to hear more about this topic, we, but we have to take some brief underwriting announcements. You're listening to 411 on 1077 The Bronx and 1077 thebronkcom From healthcare to the environment around us and everything in between, Rider University's Health Studies Institute presents Health 411. Dr. Jonathan Carr, Professor of Biology, Behavioral Neuroscience, and Health Sciences, is here expanding your knowledge and perspective. 1077 The Bronx, 1077thebronc.com, live from the Killarney's Public House Studios. Welcome back to Health 411. 
I'm Dr. Jonathan Karp. I am in the studio today talking remotely with Dr. Payal Shah from the University of Pennsylvania. Dr. Shah is a medical oncologist and clinical investigator who specializes in the genetic basis of breast cancer, ovarian cancer, and other kinds of cancers. And at the end of the last segment, she was telling us um, about some of the options that are available to people who test uh, for some of the genes that are high risk um, in cancer. So the, the idea of what happens in that test, what is genetic testing? Um, can you tell us a little bit more about that, Dr. Shaw? Yeah, absolutely. So um, I think what's interesting is to think about it almost from a historical perspective. So when we first learned about these genes in the middle of the 1990s, soon after that is when clinical testing actually became available. And the way that it was done at that time was that patients were basically identified by their doctors on the basis of saying, hey, you know, I have um, a really strong family history of breast cancer and ovarian cancer, and everybody was diagnosed at young ages, what's going on? And so people who were identified on the basis of this kind of personal or family history of cancer were offered testing, and initially testing was really only for two genes, BRCA1 and BRCA2. And it went on this way for quite a while, and most of the testing was done by this one company called Myriad Genomics until about 2013, when there were kind of two things that happened simultaneously. So on the one hand, in June of 2013, the Supreme Court actually invalidated patents that Myriad Genomics, uh, Myriad Genetics had on the BRCA1 and 2 genes. So it used to be the case that really Myriad Genetics had patents over these genes, and, and that's why they were kind of the only show in town when it came to who was able to do the testing. Mm-hmm. And that didn't change until 2013 when the Supreme Court said, you know, you, genes you are products of nature. Nature. You they're can't patent really, a gene. Uh, they're <laughs> not really uh, ownable by a specific company. And around the same time, there were some significant technological advancements. So something called next-generation sequencing came along. And what that meant was, whereas before, actually doing the genetic testing was a very time-consuming and onerous and expensive process, with next-generation sequencing, um, the technology was available to look at many, many many genes all at the same time, much more quickly for a much lower cost. And as a result, there were multiple companies that be that kind of like came into the playing field that started offering multiple different kinds of genetic testing, looking at any number of genes, so not just BRCA1 and 2. So where we are now is that testing can include anywhere from one gene. If you know someone in your family has one specific gene mutation, we can look at just that or more than 100. Um, There's no, importantly, there's no real minimum degree of what we call clinical validity or clinical utility required, meaning like if we are able to test for it, we can test for it. However, that doesn't necessarily mean that your test result is going to have implications for you or provide you with any benefit. So, so a combination of a change in the laws and, a, and the technological yeah. development allowed the, the, the sort of the industry of testing to develop, and that includes testing for like consumers, the 23andMe yeah. and Ancestry.com, but it also changed the nature of diagnostic medicine. That's what you're saying. That's exactly right. Yeah, and so. Um, as as a result of that, one of the things, not just talking about how it happens, I mean, do you actually have to buy, I mean, before we go on, I mean, do you have to actually biopsy tissue to do this genetic testing or what? what what's yeah. the process like? So, so that's. 
that's a great question, and it brings up one really important distinction, which is that there's when we talk about genetics and we talk about cancer genetics, there's an important distinction to make. So there's testing an individual which means taking a sample of their blood or their saliva um, to see what that DNA looks like. And that's what we call germline testing, and that's what um, patients can understand as in, uh, testing for an inherited susceptibility to cancer. That's a little bit different than what we call somatic testing, which means testing the tumor tissue itself to look at the genes inside the tumor, which is also very important, but that's important for the purposes of tailoring treatments for the cancers. And it's less important to look at tumor tissue when we're thinking about um, what predisposed an individual to develop the cancer in the first place. So so what are the are so are so you're saying that the cells that are collected from you know skin cells that are in saliva and cells that are in a tumor you, the genomes are not the same? Nope, exa you're exactly right. They are not the same. They may however share certain similar genetic changes and for that reason while I kind of presented it as a dichotomy and it is kind of like a there are two distinct uh, types of genetic testing they're a little bit related and what I mean by that is if we see a certain change in the tumor tissue that can prompt us to think well there might be something going on in the germline something inherited as well so let's do that testing as well. Cool. And then as a, as a physician, your, your approach might be a little different depending what you find in each uh, compartment. That's exactly right. Interesting. Now, in genetic testing, is there anything from, for a patient who has that suggested for to be afraid of on the test itself? So that is a really good question, and in terms of, and I think it brings up the important point of knowing what testing you are getting in the first place, and it brings up the um, point of what we call pre-test genetic counseling, mm -hmm. meaning that, you know, with some of the companies offering genetic testing, consumers have the ability to sign up online, have a kit sent to them in the mail where they can either spit in a tube or get their blood drawn and mail it back, and then they get genetic testing results just sent directly back to them. That approach is kind of convenient in certain ways. It avoids uh, appointments. It avoids insurance, but it doesn't allow for what we call pre-test genetic counseling. So when genetic counseling is done in the context of a medical model, patients will oftentimes meet with a provider, maybe a genetic counselor, maybe a physician, and hear a little bit about what exactly the testing entails, what exactly they might find out, and what exactly they might be recommended to do based on those findings. So it sounds and, like we see that a lot. It's information without context. Yeah. I'm sorry? It's, it's information that one can gather, but has no context for interpretation of the information. That's exactly right. And so is that what a genetic counselor provides? Yeah, so genetic counselors provide certainly context for interpreting results. Mm -hmm. They can also provide sort of a heads up of what you might find. For example, there are certain genes that, there's a gene called CDH1. And if a person is found to have an inherited mutation in this gene, they're at a really high lifetime risk of developing not just breast cancer, but also gastric cancer. And as a result, if someone's found to have a mutation in this gene, they're actually going to get the advice to have their stomach surgically removed as a completely preventive measure. 
Now you can imagine that some people might not want to know any, might not want to know if they even have that mutation. They might mm -hmm. not want to be faced with the decision of whether or not to undergo such a drastic surgery. But that is that kind of conversation only happens during the course of pre-test genetic counseling, which genetic counselors are, are well-equipped and well-trained to do. Yeah, and, and it comes back to teaching people to think probabilistically. Um, yeah, exactly yeah, right. And it's, 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 it's a thing. It's also treating people before they're actually sick. Yeah, which is exactly. some, it's a thing to, con to continue. And so the, the genetic testing that's available both commercially and um, with a physician um, has to be interpreted very, very carefully then in, in a lot of ways. Um, Absolutely. And, and remember the, we've actually had other shows where we talk about like determinants of cancer and we know it's not the gene themselves. There's sort of these multi-hit theories of multiple things have to line up for these genes to actually cause cancer. That's right. The genes are a predisposing factor, but certainly are not the whole story. Yeah, which is really good. And so one of the things that um, I know you wanted to talk about is uh, sort of the issues around genetic testing um, related to disparities. And the disparities are, in, in sort of the operationally define it, are sort of differences in health that are unnecessary and sort of avoidable, that are unjust and, I guess, unfair um, kinds of things. And how does this relate to the world of genetic testing? testing for cancer it so that's I am glad you brought this up and I'm happy to talk about it so as I said at the very beginning of the show one of the things that has been really well documented in the literature is that african-american women who have breast cancer have a, a higher likelihood of having that breast cancer be diagnosed at an early age or of a more aggressive subtype, for example, a subtype called triple negative breast cancer, mm -hmm. and they are more likely to have a higher mortality rates. They're more likely to die from their breast cancer as compared to white women. And despite us knowing about all of this, they are substantially less likely than white women to undergo BRCA1 or 2 genetic testing. And there's been some very interesting research looking into why exactly this, this is and what we can do about it. Yeah, excellent. And so I think, you know, one of the things that has been noted is that some of these factors are patient-related. So when doing surveys, surveys have basically found that African-American women have different um, perceptions as to how helpful or how beneficial BRCA testing will be for them. They may perceive it to be less available to them. They, it may seem like it's harder to actually get it done than, um, than it is. And there's also an element of, um, you know, is this research, do I trust my physician, do I trust the medical system? Um, and some of these things differentially affect minority populations and that, as opposed to um, and I, and I, I women do, of Caucasian and, ancestry. Yes, and I do want to go into exactly that, but unfortunately okay. we have to take a, a, a brief break for some underwriting. Sure. Um, you're listening to Health 411 on 1077 The Bronx and 1077thebronc.com. A dose of knowledge a day keeps a doctor away. Rider University's Health Studies Institute presents Health 411. And back with your daily dosage is Dr. Jonathan Carr, Professor of Biology, Behavioral Neuroscience, and Health Sciences. 
1077 The Bronx, 1077 thebronkcom live from the Killarney's Public Health Studios. Welcome back to Health 411. I'm Dr. Jonathan Karp in the studio remotely with Dr. Payal Shah from the University of Pennsylvania. Dr. Shah is an assistant professor of medicine and an expert in hematology and oncology. And she is telling us a little bit about um, genetic testing. And she, in the last segment, we talked about what's involved in genetic testing. And we, at the end of it, we were starting to talk about disparities, which are, um, you know, differences that are unnecessary in health and health care and health access that are unfair and unjust. And there, there are some known disparities when it comes to genetic testing related to cancer. And um, can you tell us a little bit more about that, Dr. Shah? Absolutely. So I think in the last segment, I was talking a little bit about patient-related factors, so patient perceptions of how helpful or useful genetic testing might be, what is the cost, what does this mean in terms of uh, employment or insurance discrimination. But one of the other really interesting sides of this that has been well-documented is that there are provider-related factors, too. So that means like that, referrals mean or that, su- suggestions for um, physicians to yeah, go get tested? Yeah, so there are differences that have been well documented in terms of physicians' recommendations for genetic testing. Oncologists and surgeons are less likely to recommend BRCA1 or 2 testing to African-American women than to white women, even after adjusting for clinical factors that tell us how likely an individual may be for carrying one of these mutations. Well, doesn't that so, go in the doesn't that go contrary to what you mentioned before about some of the prevalence rates in the African American community being higher? Yeah, it's ex- you're exactly right. We should really be doing a better job in uh, in capturing and appropriately uh, kind of capturing the clinical factors that um, could make an individual more likely to have a genetic mutation, we really should be doing a better job of testing women who are African-American and have breast cancer um, than we are. And that's because we know that they have at least the same likelihood as white women of having these mutations in the first place. Interesting. And so you, so there are differences in the referral rates, but even yeah. if there are referrals, you know, a lot of people, as soon as they get a referral from a physician, they run right to the pharmacy, the specialist, <laughs> whatever the physician says, you know. Um, yeah, it, I, it, I absolutely <laughs> wish that was the case, but we know that it's not. Yeah. So this is where, you know, the provider-related factors are certainly there, and that's kind of surprising in one area mm-hmm. for improvement in terms of what we're doing, but we also know that even when the referrals are made, um, and this is across the board, this isn't, you know, specific to minority populations, but certainly minority populations are are less likely to take a recommendation and actually have the testing done. And the other, the other is that because some of the things you mentioned before is about uh, privacy, fear, trust, those, those kind of issues, did they come up in the research? Yes, absolutely. Those issues have come up and, and this, the studies are um, uh, definitely show that those kinds of things matter. So there's a concern, um, a differential concern amongst minorities than white women about what the risks associated with genetic testing might be, whether or not they're going to be discriminated against in terms of insurance and employment. Mm-hmm. Um, another kind of side of this is that language seems to matter as well. So 
for for Asian populations in particular, um, there seems to be if there's a language barrier, you know, I guess there's not as clear communication as to what the risks and benefits of genetic testing are, and so Asian American Asian Americans are one of the minorities that may not take a recommendation to have genetic testing done and actually carry that out. Um, right. Is that is that because then, they just don't want to know? You know, it's. I think that is getting to kind of an individual level thing. So people probably have varying motivations for what um, what actually prevents them from getting it done. I think there's certainly some patients who don't want to know and they don't want the information that could possibly shake things up or um, you know have them uh, cause them to face some really difficult decisions. But I think part of it is that. Maybe doctors are not doing a good enough job of explaining um, what what the uh, what the implications might be of that testing, and so I think there's I think there's patient factors and provider factors, and there's areas for improvement when we look at both sides of this. Yeah, and does the word stigma that is promoted here in a lot of ways the word stigma is used on college campuses a lot i'm wondering if that's part of the the resistance in certain communities um where people might feel ashamed of information they might find out Yes, I think that there, I think stigma definitely plays a role. And I wouldn't even say that's necessarily specific to minority populations as opposed to Caucasian uh, patients. I think that stigma is a concern that's somewhat universal. And one um, kind of downstream implication of this is in something that we call cascade testing. And by that, I mean that even when an individual finds out that they have, when an individual finds out that they have a genetic mutation, one of the, um, one of our goals as their providers, as their phys- physicians, is to help them loop in relatives that are also at risk of carrying a mutation. And we try to get those relatives tested with the goal being that if we identify people who have this genetic mutation, we can also talk to them about what they can do to prevent the cancers or manage their risk. And so cascade testing of family members is one way that we can really um, make strides towards cancer prevention. But getting back to your point about stigma, what we see is that minority populations have lower rates of cascade testing. And one of the barriers to getting cascade testing done is that patients who find out that they have these genetic mutations um, do feel somewhat either ashamed or scared or otherwise reluctant to discuss these genetic findings with their family members. And so we're, if, you know, if if we can't discuss the findings with a family member, we can't get those family members in for their own testing. Mm-hmm. Just, just for curiosity, um, it occurred to me as you're talking about this. Have, in your, have you ever found a relationship that ended because somebody found out they tested positive for some a mutation, and somebody said, "Well, I don't want to either. I don't want to have children with you. I don't want to be with you because I don't want to take care of you when you get later, uh, get old, and potentially sick." Has anything like that ever happened, or is that a little too you extreme? You know what? I- In terms of has it ever happened, I am sure it has. I feel very, very fortunate that, um, to my, as you know, as far as I know from my patients, that really is 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 generally not the case. I find most people to be relatively supportive. However, 
you know, to that point, I do find this to be a major concern for patients who find out that they have these mutations. There is certainly a huge burden of, you know, when I start dating someone, when do I share with them yes, that I, I have a mutation? Or when do I share with them that I've had a preventive mastectomy? Or, um, you know, or will they still want to be with me when they learn about this mutation? And I think that there is, uh, you know, while I feel relatively fortunate that most <laughs> most of my patients have uh, been in either n no relationship or a supportive relationship, um, I think that that is certainly a very legitimate and prevalent concern that a lot of young men and women with these mutations have. Yeah. Well, it seems like from your experience, it sort of speaks positively to people sh who either have cancer in their family or should get tested because it sounds like fam people who have support um, have mechanisms to deal with it and you shouldn't fear um, losing your loved ones over these things at least in your experience yeah yeah, we definitely, I mean, I think it's impossible to tell someone who has a genetic predisposition to cancer that they should not have fear, because I, I just hate personally telling people how they should and shouldn't feel. Um, I think that um, all feelings about this are valid, and uh, but I do want to emphasize that there is a lot of reason for hope. There are things that we can do to prevent cancers. There are things that we can do to manage cancer risk. There are things that we can do to even treat the cancers once we know that they're there. But we certainly recognize that we as healthcare providers and researchers in this field, we need to do a better job. We need to have better options for our patients. You know, there has to be a better option for, for someone than go get your ovaries and fallopian tubes removed because that is you know, it, it, it's the best we have at the moment, but we're working on more. Um, and uh, so I think fear is valid, but hope is also very, very valid. And it sounds like that kind of passion that's coming through is what drives some of the research that you do. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, for me personally, part of the reason that I love seeing patients in clinic is because it it reminds me of why the research is so, so important. And then part of why I think research is so, so important is because I think of those patients that I see in clinic and I know that we need better options for them. Excellent. Um, with that, let, let, me, let me conclude this segment and it's a great place to start with the next one. Uh, we'll be right back with more healthcare talk after these brief underwriting announcements. You're listening to Health 411 on 1077 The Bronx and 1077thebronc.com. From healthcare to the environment around us and everything in between, Rider University's Health Studies Institute presents Health 411. Dr. Jonathan Carr, Professor of Biology, Behavioral Neuroscience, and Health Sciences, is here expanding your knowledge and perspective. Well, 1077 The Bronx, 1077thebronc.com, live from Killarney's Public House Studios. You're listening to Health 411. I'm Dr. Jonathan Karp in the studio today remotely with Dr. Pyle Shah from the University of Pennsylvania. And we were talking about genetic testing, some of the good things about genetic testing and some of the more difficult decisions that people have to make after, after genetic testing, depending on what they find. And one of the things that we were talking about is the importance of getting the information from genetic testing in, in context, being able to interpret it and understand it, and the role of genetic counseling and before people make decisions. And sometimes people have to make very difficult decisions um, when they find the results of genetic testing. And can you tell us a little bit more about that, Dr. Shaw, please? 
Yes, thank you. So I think that, um, you know, one of the most important things that we can do as providers is help people as they navigate the world of what their options are after they find out that they have a genetic cancer predisposition mutation. Um, but in some ways, that's almost the uh, more well-delineated part of our job. I think that the really important part of our job is getting individuals who should be tested tested and I think that um, you know part of what we've noticed in in through my work and others work in disparities is that we as providers are um, have some room to go in terms of getting ourselves to do a better job and helping patients have the awareness that they need in order to get testing in the first place. And so there's a couple of initiatives going on that are worth mentioning. Um, one is uh, a, an initiative called Latinx and BRCA, which is um, there's a, a, a woman named Alejandra Campoverdi who is a um, BRCA carrier herself, and uh, she has partnered with the Basser Center for BRCA to basically launch this initiative that's aimed at raising awareness and education and resources for um, individuals in the Latin community around BRCA-related cancers. So I think that she, that, you know, that's one example of an, an individual and an organization specifically aimed at raising awareness in um, a, a Latin community. I think that uh, recently Matthew Knowles, who's uh, Beyonce's father, being diagnosed with breast cancer associated with a BRCA mutation has done something really remarkable by way of sharing his experience and speaking publicly about it. Um, I think that he, uh, you know, through his experience and his willingness to share it, he's highlighted that um, BRCA mutations are an issue for African Americans and also breast cancer is an issue for men. So I think that um, the more that we have people talking about um, their experiences and emphasizing that minority populations are at risk, the, the better job we're going to be able to do of closing some of these gaps mm -hmm. um, in terms of getting people tested and getting them, um, a, a, be, helping them become aware of what's out there. And I can imagine it's not just testing in a clinical setting. Um, the other investigator side of you might say it's important for people in minority populations to volunteer to give their 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 DNA um, to create the panels that for which you know tests are compared to would, would you agree with that yes absolutely so one kind of one related issue is uh, there's this concept of what's called a variant of uncertain significance mm -hmm. and that is you know when you do genetic testing and you get a genetic testing result it can either be this is what we call pathogenic or likely pathogenic meaning it increases likelihood of you know, X or Y cancer. Another possible test result is this is a, um, there's no pathogenic mutation found, meaning there's nothing in someone's genetics that we can find that associates with an increased risk for cancer. But there's this kind of intermediate category called a variant of uncertain significance or a VUS. And those basically have an uncertain relationship with cancer. Um, the majority of VUSs over time end up being downgraded to being, you know, it's determined that they're not really related with cancer, but a small population of them will be upgraded 
as being either pathogenic or likely pathogenic. And what we know is that minority populations are more likely to have these VUSs, and that's because, in part, we have less data on them historically because they've had less genetic testing historically. Yeah. So, um, yeah, absolutely. In order for us to learn more, we need more genetic testing results. Um, and that's one example of that. Yeah, and I, I can and <laughs> I can imagine it's complicated too. And like in, in my own family, my my brother married somebody who's from India, so their kids are half white and half Indian. And so mm-hmm. I'm sure there's not a huge database that can be mined to understand um, that particular combination of genes as it relates to cancer or any other health issue. And the only way yeah. that that would happen is if more people who are like that, sort of the biracial thing, volunteered for research and collected more data. Is that sort of what yep. you're saying? So, yes, absolutely. That's, it's really important for minority populations yeah. to get testing yeah. for that uh, reason, too. And so it sounds like, there, even though there is a lot of fear about genetic testing out there for the trust and the privacy and the, you know, the stigma concerns that you've mentioned, um, it sounds like you're a strong advocate that the benefits or the potential benefits in both medicine and research outweigh the potential harm. Would you agree? So I want to be a little bit careful about that. I think that the benefits of testing for the right person outweigh the harms. So there are um, certain indications for testing, and I think that uh, the, the threshold of who to test is a little bit of a hot topic in, in genetics. I know um, that sounds a little... Uh, and what, what, what do you, what do you mean a hot topic? So there's basically a couple of different sides of the coin. So there's a school of thought that um, the individuals that are appropriate for testing uh, we, we should identify them based on their personal and family history. They should have a history that suggests that there might be a mutation there. And when we do the testing, we should be testing for genes that if we find a mutation, we know what to do with that information. And there is an action to take based on that information that actually helps a person. But what you said so that's is kind of one lo- side of the yeah, coin. But you also said there's a lot of it people don't know what to do. Right, exactly. So there are findings that we just don't know what to do with, but even though we don't know what to do with them, if we find them, they can be kind of distressing for a person emotionally. It can can feel like a burden or, um, uh, you know, it can be a little bit difficult emotionally or psychologically. But there is this other school of thought that we shouldn't be under-testing. There are people who say that a family, we don't always have a family history present in the context of finding one of these mutations, and that if we only test people after they develop cancer, that's actually a failure of prevention, and so we should be testing more. And so um, some people say we should test more. Some people say we should test less. Some people say we should test for more mutate for more genes. Some people say <laughs> we should test for fewer genes. And so, who to test is a little bit of um, uh, a discussion in our world. Yeah. But for the right person, certainly the benefits of testing uh, can outweigh the risk. Is this an example of the science or the abilities of science outpacing sort of the ethical and the moral and the those sort of issues? <laughs> Yeah, I do think you could say that, and I think some would say that. <laughs> You're hedging your bet. Yeah. Um, and so another thing that you've brought up, and it's sort of you, you mentioned this a little bit, but it underlies so much of what you're saying, and it's related, is the idea of appropriate genetic counseling. Um, yeah. Now, is that something as a physician, as a clinician, you do, or can you have to be at a specialized genetic counselor to do that? Um, how does that work? 
So genetic counselors are really, you know, in my opinion and at Vassar, they're an indispensable part of our team. Um, and they have special training and uh, education that allows them to have these really informed conversations with patients and answer questions on everything from what the cancer risks are quantitatively and qualitatively to what does this mean in terms of um, insurance coverage or employment discrimination. And I, I think, you know, genetic counselors are extremely valuable and well-trained to have some of these conversations with patients. I think that what one, one thing that we all know is that they are a scarce commodity. So there is a national shortage of genetic counselors. Not every center or every you know, location or state is, is lucky enough to have enough genetic counselors easily accessible. And so there's a lot of research going on um, by way of other ways that we can improve access to genetic services, um, access to genetic counselors, and there's different, um, uh, there's there's research going on looking at telemedicine efforts to see if any of this can be done remotely for people who live in areas without access to genetic counselors. So although I think that genetic counselors are really an incredibly valuable and indispensable um, part of our team, because not every institution or location is lucky enough to have access to genetic counselors, I think there also needs to be other ways to do this. Can you imagine that genetic counselors who might speak the patient's language or be of the patient's same minority background, do you think that would be a very powerful thing in treatment? Oh, absolutely. I think that, um, I think that you know, any time an individual can relate to the person in front of them, that individual may be more likely to kind of heed the advice. Um, heed the advice of the person in front of them. And actually, um, there was a New York Times article written by uh, a woman named Erica Stallings, and she is um, one of the co-chairs of a group called the Basser Young Leadership Council. And she actually noted in her New York Times article that only 1% of genetic counselors in the United States are black, and, um, and that could help. And if we had more black healthcare professionals who kind of had this background and had this expertise, that could actually help increase the number of black women who receive genetic testing. Yeah, excellent. Thank you so much, so much for that. Um, unfortunately, we are running out of time. Um, it's been a real pleasure talking to you, Dr. Shah. Um, Thank you so much. And this has been great. Uh, 107.7 The Bronx, 107.7 TheBronc.com, live from Killarney's Public House Studios. Thank you for listening to Health 411. This program is part of the Ryder University Health Studies Institute's efforts to bring people together to address issues associated with all aspects of healthcare. I hope today's program has helped inform you about genetic testing, um, disparities in genetic testing, and helped dispel some of the fears of genetic testing and made you aware of the issues. I'd like to thank our guest, Dr. Pyle Shaw from the University of Pennsylvania. If you have questions and or comments about this program or the Health Studies Institute at Rider University, please email us at health411 at rider.edu.